Hello and welcome to the Aquarius Podcast. I'm your host, Randy Reed. This episode is sponsored by The Aquarium Co-op, your home for healthy, vibrant aquarium plants and all the best fish foods and aquarium accessories. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard the buzz going around the internet these days, but there's a new product out there that has a lot of people, myself included, very excited. That product, folks, is the Aquarium Co-op Easy Planter. That's right, a new addition to the co-op lineup, the Easy Planter. So, what is the Easy Planter? Well, gather around and let me tell you. It is the easiest way for you to get live aquarium plants into your tanks, whether they have substrate or not. And as you know, I have only a small number of tanks in my fish room with substrate, and it's certainly not enough for planting into. So basically, all you do is place your aquarium co-op plants in their pot holders, just like you receive them from us, into the Easy Planter and place it all in your aquarium. Presto, done. This means no more damaging roots, taking apart the rock wool, or fighting with string and superglue to attach your java fern or nubius to rocks and driftwood. And unless your fish straight up eat plants, you can now keep plants with species that would normally move and ruin plants in the substrate. So cichlid lovers, rejoice. The Easy Planter is a gorgeous resin decoration that doubles as an aquarium plant pot holder. The plant pot fits in beautifully and leaves almost no plastic showing. And to ensure your plants can thrive, there's a hole in the bottom of the planter for roots to grow and move into the substrate. Almost every one of my tanks in the fish room have an Easy Planter with species like Dwarf Sagittaria, Pearlweed, Amazon Swords, and Java Fern. If you follow me on Instagram, you've seen a picture of Dwarf Sag in the Easy Planters in my fish room, and I mean, it, it absolutely loves it, so no trouble whatsoever with these plants growing in there. And I couldn't be more pleased with how the Easy Planter has changed the look of my fish room. Head on over to Aquarium Co-op and pick up one or 20 Easy Planters for each of your aquariums. Now, on to the interview. Today's date is Tuesday, November 24th, 2020. My guest today is Dr. Harmony Patricio. Harmony is the Conservation Program Manager for Shoal, a non-governmental organization dedicated to raising awareness and directing conservation efforts for at-risk and endangered freshwater fish species. Harmony's academic credentials include a BA in Environmental Studies from UC Santa Cruz, Go Banana Slugs, an MPA in Environmental Science and Policy from Columbia University in New York, and her PhD in Environmental Science from the Australian Rivers Institute at Griffith University, Brisbane, Australia. Harmony has spent the past 10 years engaged in international conservation efforts in Southeast Asia and Central America. Today, Harmony and I are going to dive into freshwater conservation and learn how aquarists can play a part in freshwater species conservation. So Harmony, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Randy, thank you for having me on the podcast. This is great. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on. And that just for the listeners, that was me going through that, that intro. One take, no mess ups. It's been a while <laughs> since I've been able to do that. And that was a longer one, too. <laughs> <laughs> so Harmony, thank you so much for uh for coming on and like the like the bio says you have a ton of academic street cred a ton of like just in the field international uh street cred of you know getting your hands wet so to speak and um kind of living and breathing and, and studying and all that stuff of of freshwater fish species and i'm i'm very very excited to have you on um yeah and so i guess I guess since there's so much to talk about with so little time, Harmony, um, can we start with, you know, what's a, what's a high level of shoal? Let's do a high level view of shoal. And then I'd love to kind of dive into your academic experience and your personal experiences in the field prior to joining shoal. Okay, great. Yeah. So I recently started with shoal a couple months ago and it's a newer organization. It was launched in the spring of 2019 
um, and were set up by two bigger global conservation organizations. One is called Synchronicity Earth, and the other is called Global Wildlife Conservation. We also work really closely with the Freshwater Fish Specialist Group of the World Conservation Union, which is a network of freshwater fish experts across the world who are focused on conservation. Um, Shoal is led by Mike Baltzer, who for nine years led uh, WWF's Tigers Alive program. And um, basically our goal is to build partnerships and mobilize action for threatened freshwater species where that action is most needed. Um, raising awareness is also a big part of our work because freshwater species just don't get the same kind of attention that marine or terrestrial species seem to. So this is why we are really grateful to be on a podcast like yours. It helps us spread the word and raise awareness. Um, our main goal is the long-term survival and recovery of the world's most threatened freshwater species especially in the areas with high levels of diversity threat. We work with top scientists around the world to assess needs and priorities and look where we can build the most effective conservation programs. Of course, partnership is uh, really at the core of our work because the freshwater biodiversity crisis is just too big for organizations to be effective by working separately. But by working together, we really have a shot at making a positive difference. And the reason we call the sum total of our partnership the shoal is because the range of stakeholders is broad and deep and ranges from international businesses to teams of scientists, conservation organizations, philanthropists, individual anglers, and aquarium hobbyists that are keen to restore freshwater species and ensure the longevity of the hobby. And you know, the strength of a shoal of fish is dependent on its numbers. So in the same way, we aim to have as many individuals and organizations as possible on board to help affect the most meaningful change. No, oh, I like it. What what is your what is your swag at why the freshwater fish species are so underrepresented um, in like kind of the public psyche of, oh, we need to save these things, you know, we need to save these creatures, and they just don't get nearly as much love as a marine species or, you know, um, I guess a, a, if I say the word cuddly, like a cuddly, you know, mammal that, that is endangered, and that's kind of self-explanatory, I guess, right there. But what, what, what are some of your thoughts? Well, I think one of the reasons is that, you know, they're hard to see. It's hard to get a good understanding and a good appreciation for these fish that are living underwater, oftentimes in turbid rivers where you can't get good photographs of them. It's not like coral reef species where you can get this incredible, you know, videos and photos. Um, so I think one reason is that it's just hard to demonstrate to people the beauty and um the spectacular nature of freshwater fish. Uh, I think another reason is that, you know, people often think of freshwater systems as a resource for human use. Water is so important for, for society, and often the biodiversity side of it is forgotten. Um, 
But I think, you know, we also maybe in the freshwater community, freshwater conservation community, haven't done the best job of getting out there and communicating in ways that are effective for the general public. We're good at talking like scientists to other scientists and kind of preaching to the choir, but we haven't maybe gotten to that next level of doing uh, the outreach and communication work that uh, some of the conservationists like in the marine world have done where they do these great, you know, BBC special films and... um, With Dr. David Attenborough. (laughs) Exactly. The the epistogramma is a... I'll I'll move off that accent attempt. I probably just lost half my viewers in the UK for that terrible, terrible accent. (laughs) But yeah, I think, think, yeah, what you're hitting on, like, out of sight, out of mind, right? And, you know, you could be like, well, uh, Nemo or or Dory, like those fish, right? Or like any of these corals or whatnot that we know that are endangered that seem to have um, some some conservation efforts propped up and a little bit more public awareness, um, you know, the, the rivers and streams and lakes don't necessarily have that same public widespread romance like the ocean and the beach does. And, you know, for Americans, like that sacred trip to Hawaii, if you're a West Coast person or going down to the Caribbean, if you're an East Coast person or, you know, if you're in the Midwest, I guess you've got decent access to either one of those or kind of, you're kind of halfway in between. But, um, you know, nobody nobody thinks of a little backwater stream in the same way that you would think of the the Great Barrier Reef or, you know, any of these pristine, awesome bodies of water. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, there are places in the world that have incredibly rich biodiverse freshwater biodiversity. I mean, I worked in the Mekong River for about six years. And there's almost a thousand species of freshwater fish in the Mekong River. And some of them are, you know, you're just shocked that they would live in a river. They have freshwater puffer fish and they have these giant stingrays that get up to 15 feet in diameter. And um, But they're just hard to see. You know, the Mekong has a lot of sediment in it. So people don't get that exposure to them that mm-hmm. they do species and other systems yeah what do you think so i i would say that i am a um god what, what would be a good word a novice a a a youngling padawan you know fly fisher right and it would seem that the fly fishing community there is a very strong sense of conservation there's a very strong sense of catch and release and you know leave no uh leave no trace um patagonia a very you know popular you know rei kind of brand right like the high techy kind of kind of gear and whatnot patagonia is very conservation minded and i think you know yeti like these other companies that have roots or ties to fly fishing um you know, many, many fly fishing anglers, I would say, are conservation minded and support various causes to, you know, return streams and rivers back to their natural, you know, courses, like their, their natural course of how they would run. And, um, you know, just making sure that things like salmon habitats and, and trout habitats are, are set up so that those species can thrive. Are there any of those elements that like the fly fishing conservation community, um, like, well, one, I guess would be, are you plugged into any of those like kind of fly fishing communities? And the second would be, is there anything that you, um, any strategies that they have implored to connect with fly fishers that, um, you know, you guys might try to mirror with the aquarist 
community. And I say that realizing that you're talking on a podcast now that does reach the, the aquarium community um, to a very small extent. Yeah, I mean, that's probably one of the best examples of, you know, uh, groups that have been focused on freshwater fish conservation are is the angling community um, because they have a vested interest in ensuring that they can maintain their hobby for the long term. And so we are working on developing relationships with angling groups uh, all over the world. And we're looking at developing projects that are focused on species that are um, kind of sought after for angling. And if those species aren't necessarily endangered, a lot of times those species can kind of serve as an umbrella species where if you do what needs to be done to keep that species healthy, you're also going to be protecting a bunch of other species that live in the same river. Um, so that's one angle we're looking at. Um, but as you said, we're like also really thinking about the aquarist community because they have so much knowledge, number one, and obviously also have a concern for maintaining the hobby and making sure that fish are healthy and available. And so um, that's one of the reasons I really appreciate being on your podcast today is because uh, you know, we've been looking a lot at how can we connect with the Aquarius community more, learn from them, and have them help kind of spread the good word about freshwater fish conservation within that network. Um, yeah, you that, know, from what I understand, freshwater f fish are the world's most popular pets. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's surprising how popular uh, freshwater you know freshwater aquariums are worldwide, and I think yeah. I don't think they get as much um, press here in the states. Which you know I've, I've seen pictures of in New York, like the New York Aquarium Club from the 30s, 40s, or 50s, or or whatever it was. I've had a past guest that's a big big historian on that, and so he showed me these pictures from you know, and this is actually in Long Island when I was at his house. He's got newspaper clippings of, you know, the New York Aquarium Club's bowl show, right? And, and a bowl show being like, you bring your betta, bring whatever fish in a bowl and display and just show everybody. And these people, granted, we dressed a little bit different back then, but they were just, you know, the, the, the place was packed. It was absolutely packed. You know, husbands, wives, men, women, they're all dressed in their Sunday best, however you want to describe it. And it was just like... I've never been to a fish event that was like that, you know, that was that packed. Um, I've been to some pretty popular fish events, but that was just really, really cool to see. And so I, I don't think we're in that same heyday, but I think we've got more people keeping fish and, and aquariums um, than we think. And especially with, unfortunately, due to COVID, with more people staying home, they are getting into, you know, various stay-at-home hobbies. And, and, you know, the aquarium hobby is, is certainly one of those things that has seen um, you know, and I, I call it an, an unfortunate increase in the number of people because I wish it were under better circumstances than COVID-19, but there are more Americans um, getting into the aquarium hobby and, and not just Americans, but, but worldwide, I think more people are certainly getting into the hobby because of it. 
Um, and, the, and kind of the caveat to that, and I've said it before, like, I really hope that as people get into the hobby, they find some of the best knowledge resources on YouTube and various social media platforms where they're inherently kind of finding out about aquariums, I would have to imagine, that they're, that they're latching on to the ones that are, that are going to give the most accurate information, not being sensational, and really setting them up for success so that you hang around, right? If you kill your first tank of 30 Cardinal Tetras and, you know, a German Blue Ram and you dropped a couple hundred bucks on livestock alone, that's going to kind of rub you the wrong way. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to lose a hobbyist for life as opposed to gain one. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I do. And I think, Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is the joy of the uh, the Skype uh, the Skype interviews is that that slight little delay. Um, I, I will say the the concept that the fr- that the fly fishers use of kind of that poster fish, if you will, and so I can already kind of play that out in my head of like, yeah, you know, in in South America in, in the Amazon, you take you take a poster fish like the zebra pleco, you can take a poster fish like the discus, probably a better example than the zebra pleco, but you say, hey, you know, the this this discus fish, kind of the king of the aquarium as it's been called for decades you know there's a serious plight to it you know we need to make sure that this discus fish is around for future generations and you know i i would have to imagine if you make conditions better for the discus fish than everything else all the other tetras all the epistogrammas all of the um you know all of the 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 rivulus the killifish everything that's in that ecosystem that body of water I, I, you, I would have to imagine that they're all going to do a little bit better too at least it, to some measure right if not in the same proportion as the discus like you're not just going to set up some type of feeding station that only like a discus would like you're going to do better conservation practices that just improve the entire you know region or body of water whatever it is right yeah absolutely that's that's kind of this idea of the umbrella species is um one that you know by conserving its habitat or addressing the threats that it's facing you're also going to alleviate pressure off a bunch of other species that live in the same water body. And, you know, you kind of get more bang for your buck that way when it comes to the conservation work. Mm -hmm. I I would imagine that all over the world, the various efforts that you guys are looking at uh, from a conservation standpoint or, or, you know, fish and regions at IUCN, which is International Union to Conserve Nature. What, What does IUCN stand for? International Union for the Conservation of Nature. Oh, like, so close. <laughs> so close. Um, I, like, I would imagine that, you know, the situation in Lake Victoria is a little bit different than the situation for Gadeads in Mexico and is a little bit different than maybe the Asian arowana situation in Southeast Asia. But is there one, like, what's the prevailing um, kind of cause for... Uh, a species pressure, I guess, um, that you see? Like, what's, like, the most common one uh, affecting freshwater fish species across the world? I mean, there's kind of four or five main causes of species freshwater fish decline. Um, Obviously, for migratory species, damming and fragmentation of rivers is a huge problem but that's also a really hard one to address Mm -hmm. although Mm -hmm. now there are some cool cases of dams being removed in different parts of the world and the ecosystems are just totally bouncing back and you're seeing fish that people hadn't seen in decades returning to these rivers so there are some good news stories there yeah we have those Uh, stories here in washington and on the olympic peninsula where they remove an old, like not even a dam that was even in service anymore. Like just, you know, the cement that was just left over from an old dam, they remove it. And just by like 
nat- nature's miracle, like all of a sudden salmon and steelhead start running in that river again. It's mm-hmm. or those streams, like it's incredible. Like how did they know and how did they survive for so long without even, you know, having access to that area? And it seems like, you know, now that you're starting to get a very, very big bounce back. But um, yeah, so um, migratory species, damming, and then I jumped in and interrupted you. Oh, and then um, habitat loss and degradation is a big one. Like since 1900, about 70% of all wetland habitats have been lost. So that's a really big threat to a lot of species that depend on wetlands. Um, Pollution is also a problem in some of the big rivers around the world, especially in parts of Asia. We've done a good job in the U.S. of cleaning up some of our rivers, but we've kind of like exported our pollution to other countries by exporting a lot of our manufacturing Mm -hmm. industries to other countries. And then invasive species is a huge one that a lot of people maybe don't think about, but there's certain species that have just you know, been transported all over the world and whether by design or accident, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, for a while in the US, it was totally normal practice for state wildlife agencies to introduce, you know, rainbow trout or brown trout to lakes and rivers where they had never had fish before um, for recreational purposes. Um, But now that that's that a policy has definitely changed gears and um, that's not really done anymore. And they're starting to remove some of those non-native species. Like actually in uh, the lake that I grew up fishing in, there were a bunch of non-native trout that I grew up fishing for. And that's part of what developed my love for freshwater species and systems was fishing in this lake and um, recently the state did a big restoration project where they got rid of all the non-native trout and reintroduced uh, native cutthroat trout to the lake. So now people can actually go and fish for their Colorado native trout. That's awesome. It's pretty cool to see. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to latch onto that as a segue to talk about your uh, your background. So uh, th- this lake would be in Col- I'm curious now. Here- here's where Randy does his Google mapping. What uh, what lake is that in Colorado? Do you feel comfortable kind of sharing? Yeah, it's called Woods Lake. Woods Lake in Colorado. So so then I guess as I look this up, I mean your your background. You feel like this is kind of your your experience fishing at Woods Lake as a kid is what really you know kind of kickstarted your fascination with uh, freshwater you know bodies of water and, and freshwater species. Yeah, I just spent a ton of time playing and swimming and fishing in that lake and then in the river, uh, the river that runs uh, through my hometown, uh, the San Miguel, and just developed a love of being in the water. And as I got older, I figured I want to do any job I can that lets me be in the water and lets me get to see fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so nice. that's kind of where it all started. Yeah. And then... As I learned more about kind of the extinction crisis that's face, that freshwater species are facing, I became even more committed to working on conservation of freshwater species because the kind of underlying motivation 
behind all my work is to reduce the number of extinctions on the planet. And when you see how fast freshwater species are going extinct, that was like totally natural for me to hone in on focusing there for my work. What is the, uh, what's like the rough, you know, ratio comparison of, of freshwater fish species um, extinction rates versus uh, cuddly little mammals or, you know, saltwater species? Yeah. So freshwater species are declining about four to six times faster than marine or terrestrial species. Um, So it's definitely, you know, definitely a a much higher rate of of loss. Let me me try and like do a a thought exercise here with Randy's extremely limited biology experience or education. So could some of that be because of how kind of divergent evolution maybe or kind of like speciation in smaller bodies of water um you know you could have more species in kind of a stretch of 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 water uh for fresh water than you could for salt water or even what you would potentially experience for terrestrial species right and so if you put a paper mill downriver from or upriver what what would be the way upriver from one of these bodies of water and pollute just a small stream you could effectively lose all of just that species that's on in the world because it's endemic to only that one stream or that one lake and that's why potentially we see um that that kind of higher rate and then on top of that maybe there's a fudge factor for we're just assuming also that there's so many freshwater fish species we haven't even identified that the moment you put a dam in in brazil you're probably going to lose 10 percent of fish that you didn't even know existed maybe some of that too yeah absolutely i mean when you add it up like rivers lakes and wetlands their area is less than one percent of the earth's surface um but about 12% of all known species live in that 0.8% mm. of the Earth's surface, whereas the oceans cover about 70% of the Earth's surface. So because all those species are concentrated in small areas, like you said, one, uh, one, one polluting industrial plant can affect a ton of species all at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I mean, uh, and I would imagine like non, what, what, what's the term for like an Amazon? Is the Amazon like a floodplain river? Like how would you describe, how, well, I guess what I'm getting at is a river where the species aren't able to reproduce in a very large area. So like a Cardinal Tetra, while they know where they generally are, like they can basically spawn in any of the flooded areas, right? For the most part, where um, if something is in you know, like a creek or a stream that typically doesn't do that, like it kind of stays within its banks, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, there, there's no, like there's really nowhere for those fish to go and just kind of like end up in a different um, tributary of the Amazon, if you will, right? Like there, it's like you're, you're kind of stuck to like Randy's Creek and, you know, there's, Randy's Creek doesn't flood over, so you can't jump into, you know, Harmony's Creek or anything, you know, like you're stuck in Randy's mm-hmm. Creek and if Randy's Creek gets polluted, you're screwed. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely another part of it is there's this isolation between systems and fish, you know, unlike a lot of other animals, they can't just get up and walk over to another (laughs) bit of suitable 
habitat. Unless so. you're a snakehead, and in which case you can. Yeah, you, <laughs> in which case you can. <laughs> the snakeheads are pretty pretty durable, and yeah, they can just live out of the water for hours on end. I saw that thing is a hell of a fish. That's a, <laughs> that's a hell of a fish right there, and they're actually you know they're they're a very popular aquarium fish too. They're a very popular food fish. They're a very popular aquarium fish. And they just happen to be ultra aggressive, you know, eat everything and can kind of like walk <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah, just survive. Yeah, like, uh, like good the... times. So um, l- let's kind of go back to your your background then. So you have you ever kept an aquarium then? And you don't lose any points for this. Maybe like half a point, but like not, not a full you point. Know, I had my first like goldfish tank when I was about six years old and um, just spent a lot of time just sitting there staring at them, fascinated <laughs> by their behavior, and then uh, had pretty simple tanks after that growing up with, yeah, like tetras and stuff. And at one point I had actually two newts, mm. <laughs> which are not fish, but <laughs> were pretty fun to keep. And you had to feed them live bloodworms out of an eyedropper. Nice. And they'd kind of like swim up to the surface and wrestle with the worm. <laughs> nice. So you, you have some aquarist chops then. Like kind of, you know, we, we talked about before, you, you know, you're like, I'm not an aquarist or anything, but you've, you've kept some tanks and, and done some cool stuff. A little bit, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Nice. But nothing compared to you or other people out there that are really dedicated. I, I, I try. I try and kind of flounder around in the hobby is, is how I would describe my experience. Um, <laughs> yeah. So then, all right. So then you, you know, you kind of fishing and you've had your aquariums and you've just had this, this love for, um, for underwater fish species and kind of bodies of water in general. And then to follow your, your kind of progress academically, um, how did you end up at UC Santa Cruz? Did you just love the banana slug mascot? <laughs> that was definitely an attraction. It's a great mascot. But um, I actually ended up there. So I grew up in Colorado, way up in the mountains. But um, my mom had gone to UC Santa Cruz. And I grew up hearing her stories about the Redwoods and the Monterey Bay and how beautiful it is. And so I kind of always thought to myself, I want to go to college there. <laughs> it sounds like a beautiful place to go to school. And, yeah, and, uh, yeah, and it is they awesome. Have a pretty good, like, environmental studies program. And uh, so, yeah, I moved out there to go to school. I left Colorado to go to school there when I was 17. Um, finished my bachelor's there. And then went to work in Costa Rica for a while after that. That's and awesome. then, yeah, that was pretty cool work. Uh, didn't get to do a ton of freshwater stuff there. I hadn't quite narrowed in on the freshwater focus in my career at that point. Um, but I got to do a little bit of freshwater work there. And then, um, what was the main focus or your, so your, uh, BA was in environmental studies. Um, did you have, was that like just kind of your, did you have a focus at all? Even if it wasn't freshwater, what were you kind of aiming for? Yeah, actually, well, it was actually freshwater related. I was working on, um, The city of Santa Cruz was working on a habitat conservation plan, which is part of a requirement under the Endangered Species Act 
for um, whenever you're doing work in a habitat that has endangered species in it. And so I was looking at the San Lorenzo River that runs through Santa Cruz and uh, the effects of channelization that had been done in the past um, on native species that rely on the river. What was your, what's your abstract kind of, you know, what's, what's the cliff note of, of your findings down there? Basically, it was that the channelization was uh, having a big impact on the populations of native fish in particular, and that some restoration work should be done to restore the sinuosity of the river. And, and that would be, for the, for the layman, that is, um, don't make it a straight, deep river, return it back to this kind of shallow, meandering, snake kind of body of a, of a, of a waterway? Exactly. Okay, yeah. Cool. Exactly. Cool. It, it, has there been any forward progress on that effort at all, to your knowledge? Um, not much has been done. There's been a little bit of habitat restoration mm-hmm. that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, the process was supposed to finish. This habitat conservation plan was supposed to finish the same year that I finished my bachelor's. And then it didn't end up actually being completed till about eight years later. <laughs> mm. It's a very political process as well. For There's sure. a lot of stakeholders that are involved. And that river has a reservoir upstream that's the main water supply for the town of Santa Cruz. So there's a lot of different interests that are engaged. And um, so it took a while for that that plan to be completed, but, uh, I was happy to, to be able to contribute a little bit to it. Mm. And then, so you spent time in, uh, Costa Rica and then at what point in, in, uh, well, I mean, the MPAs and environmental science and policy at Columbia. Um, so was there any major like real focus in, in jumping into freshwater conservation or, um, I guess, did that just kind of, did that master's program just kind of call to you, um, as kind of a next step? The main reason I pursued that master's program is because while working in Costa Rica, I realized that uh, conservation work and research can't just be done in a vacuum. If you want to really make a difference, you need to influence policy at a higher mm, level. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it would be really good for me to like learn about the policy world, learn how to interact with policymakers and hopefully be able to translate scientific research for decision makers so that that research could be applied for conservation action on the ground. Mm, I bet that was fun. <laughs> I bet I, <laughs> fun. and I well I say that in the sense of like 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 this understanding of like this is how this works uh, but like you know you're you're getting valuable insight but it's like really is this is this, this how this is how it works? <laughs> It was challenging and a bit frustrating at times because it's such a different way of approaching things than kind of the, than you take in the science world, you know, it's, uh, there's no like right or wrong answers necessarily, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's all very iterative and not very quantitative and um, more qualitative and so it was a stretch for me, for sure. I really had to push myself to 
to kind of wrap my head around how this all worked and Mm -hmm. um, sometimes was a little disillusioning to see, you know, how there can be all this great scientific evidence out there pointing to something really important, but it doesn't necessarily matter if whoever is in charge at the time in the policy realm doesn't want to listen to that. It's like the, uh, the, sci- the science community had to offer you and others up as tribute to learn how to like communicate with policymakers. And, you know, you were one of those people offered up as tribute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so then it sounds like and then your Ph.D. sounds like when you get back to kind of fun stuff, right? Environmental sciences from the uh, Australian Rivers Institute in Brisbane, which I mean, that, that alone right there is like, I bet she had a good time. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty, pretty good. I. Before, so between my master's and my PhD, I worked in the Mekong River for about six years. I took a big break uh, from school to go get my hands wet and get my feet muddy so how <laughs> in did, the Mekong. How did, how did that opportunity come about? Because I, I would have assumed that that would have come after maybe this PhD work. But uh, if you're saying that that's in between, um, yeah, how did, how did that present itself to you? So after I finished my master's, I got a job with a consulting company based in Central California that mostly does monitoring for salmonids in the Central Valley of California. But my boss in the company was really um, driven to start an international conservation program because he wanted to take a lot of the technology and uh capacity that we have in the U.S. to to places where it's needed and it's not currently accessible. And I recommended to him that we focus on the Mekong River because I had just been to a conference for the Society for Conservation Biology where I saw a bunch of presentations about the Mekong River and how there's this incredible diversity of freshwater fish species, um, but there's uh, a lot of threats coming down the line. A bunch of hydropower dams were being planned in the region, and very little is still known about a lot of the fish in the Mekong River. Um, So I just thought that was a good opportunity to make some positive impacts for conservation. Also, there isn't a ton of local capacity in the region, for research and conservation. I mean, Thailand and Vietnam have some decent capacity, but Cambodia and Laos have really not that much capacity, mostly due to the effects of the war and um, the Cambodian genocide as well. They lost a lot of their scientists at that time. Um, So I thought that's a good place to bring the technology and do the capacity building so that there can be more local people who can do the conservation work Um, and it was a great experience. I spent a lot of time in tiny little rural fishing villages like that sounds so awesome and eating and fishing with the local people and ate a lot of weird animals (laughs) that I wouldn't necessarily you know go for but you know when you're trying to develop relationships with people and they offer you uh, uh, some lizard meat, then you got to eat it. You yeah, know? <laughs> for sure. For sure. Wow. That's, that is so cool. Like that, uh, that experience sounds amazing. That was, did you say six years? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
six yeah was it fairly um straight through or did you take like you know a few months off to come back to the states or what what was that like yeah we kind of spend like three or four months there then come back to the states for a month or two and then go back again for several months and kind of did it that way and that sounds awesome um yeah before we get into kind of the species of the Mekong, can you kind of give us like an overview of, you know, I, I think most people would have a, a decent sense of like, say, a, a popular river like the Amazon or the Rift Lakes in Africa. Um, but the Mekong, like what's kind of like the geological overview of the Mekong River? Well, it's a pretty big river. It actually starts in the Tibetan Plateau and uh, flows through southern China. It's and in China, they call it the Lansang River. And then the lower part of the Mekong flows through, um, what is it, Myanmar, Vietnam, Laos, Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Wow. That's huge. So That's like, what is it, like 6,000 miles or some crazy, 3,000 maybe? What, what, where, where am I swagging here? Where's my Google map? I mean, if it starts in Tibet and goes all the way to Vietnam, that yeah. is in, I mean, and that's a lot of opportunity for pollution and like all sorts of human shenanigans kind of along the way. Yeah. yeah I know it in kilometers. I'm trying to see what it would be in miles. Maybe around 3000 for the lower section. I'm not sure about if you add the Chinese section onto it. Probably another three thousand. So yeah, you're probably right about six thousand or so. And then to take a whiff or a whiff rather, I think the United States going from like California to say New Jersey, that's like a three thousand mile drive, right? To go across country, is it something like that? Right. Jeez yeah. Louise! And so, somebody out there might be screaming like, "It's only fifteen hundred, you moron!" Or I don't know, but it's uh, <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. a, that's a very very long distance for a river to run. That's that is crazy. And and for me, like just watching Discovery Channel and those kind of shows as a kid, um, knowing the Mekong for the uh, for the catfish, the 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 Mekong was it giant Mekong River catfish. What's the? Oh yeah, that's one of my favorite fish. <laughs> I mean, did you ever get it? Did you get a chance to see one in person? Well, not in the river because they're really critically endangered. They're so rare now that um, researchers never see them anymore. And maybe once a year a fisherman will catch one on accident. Um, But I did get to go to a reservoir in Thailand where the government uh, breeds them. Mm. And... uh, I got to get in the water with them, and some of them were really curious. They, like, came up to my legs and were kind of bumping up oh against my, my legs. And um, I also just love their look, like, their the way their eyes are so low set, like, almost below their mouths, and they just kind of look cute and, like, they're smiling a little bit. <laughs> they, they have, like, an Admiral Akbar kind of look from Star Wars, um, the, Mon, the Mon Calamari look for people that uh, yeah. maybe don't know the Mekong Giant Catfish, but you know Star Wars references. Yeah. That's, that's kind of what, what they look like. But they're – how big do they get? Is it 500 or 1,000 pounds? Like, how big do these suckers get? Because they're, they're, like – aren't they, the, from a weight perspective, the largest freshwater fish species? I think the biggest one – uh recorded was around 750 pounds <laughs> that is a massive massive fish 
And then, yeah. and then the giant freshwater stingrays are nothing, you know, they're no small creature themselves either. No, they're huge. I think they get up to maybe about 15 feet in diameter, something like that. And this is a fun Google image thing for, for listeners. Like if you happen to be at work or something and you can, you know, pull up Google images of the, the Mekong giant catfish and then a giant freshwater stingray, it's, it's unreal. Like it is, it, it looks like a mini UFO is what a giant freshwater stingray looks like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's just what it looks like. <laughs> that is crazy. And I would assume those also would then have the defensive barb, right? They do, but um, I've never heard of people being injured by them. Okay. So I mean, that thing would maybe have to that's be like they're so rare, but like a javelin yeah. size or something. <laughs> that's just got to be incredible big they stay on the bottom for the most part so they don't come in contact with people all mm-hmm. that much and then from a diversity standpoint just again the google search of the species that are in the mekong river you've got the giant catfish we've talked about the freshwater fish or the freshwater the giant freshwater stingray um they're listing giant barbs giant pangasius iridescent sharks there's a irwadi dolphin um so that's kind of cool like the amazon has the uh, has the, the freshwater dolphin so does the mekong river uh, yeah. black, black shark minnow, uh, parabarbus, uh, Laotian shads. I mean, and I'm, I'm doing a terrible job of like calling out these fish, giant garami. Um, and then you start getting into like some more tropical fish species, like some rasboras. They've got red tailed rasboras. And I'm sure, you know, you said there's a couple thousand freshwater fish species. About a thousand. About a thousand. So, wow. Yeah. And did yeah. you ever come across any, like while, while you were fishing or doing any collecting of anything that would have been, um, you know, something we'd, we would keep in the hobby? Um, in Thailand, they have, of course, the bettas. So I got to see quite a few of those. They're beautiful and uh, not so much in the Mekong River itself, though, but, yeah, in other parts of Thailand. What are the what are the theories on why the Mekong, or, you know, is able to, I guess not so much support, but, you know, how... Like, what's the theories on why they're letting these species... Like, how does the Mekong support such a species getting to such massive proportions? There's nobody really knows for sure. There is some... Some of the thinking is that um, it has the highest change in river level of between the wet season and the dry season of any river on Earth. So that allows, like, a lot of floodplain habitat to develop during the rainy season when the water levels are high, which creates a bunch of nursery habitat, a lot of food availability. Um, But yeah, nobody really knows for sure. There's, you know, they think might have something to do with the amount of nutrients in the river. But it's Mm -hmm. funny, something like the Mekong giant catfish, it grows so huge but it's uh, not a carnivorous species. It just eats algae. Well, I guess it eats it eats little, you know, tiny invertebrates that live in the. It's like it's like a, it's like a blue whale, right? Like it's the blue whale comparison, but, where you've got this massive yeah. whale that, like, it's not going around just crushing other whales or sharks or you know, big fish. It's it's eating krill and yeah, you know, tiny, yeah, tiny little. Wow. Yeah, an algae. Yeah. And al- it, it loves this algae that grows in the rocks. So everybody's a little bit mystified by how it gets so big. 
<laughs> and it grows really quickly too. Eat your, eat your veggies, kids. You can grow big like the uh, Mekong giant catfish, right? <laughs> and then, so is this uh, in your time in Vietnam? Is this where you start to? Because um, you brought up the para, God, jeez, I'm gonna butcher this name. Paris, paro, fromensis. Parasfromensis. Oh, the Parasfromensis. Man, yeah, I did such a bad job. Now, is that is that? Are you familiar with them because of Shoal, or are you familiar with them from your time there in Southeast Asia? I actually didn't work on these uh, this group when I was in Southeast Asia, but Shoal has is a project with a local partner in Peninsular Malaysia, um, where we're working on conservation of species like the licorice gourami, which is one of these paraphemenous species. So that's, you know, how I became familiar with them is just through Shoal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because you, you, as we were talking before to set up this interview, um, you had said this name and it, the, the genus didn't catch my, it, I didn't remember it at all. But then when I did the Google search, I found the, the paraphemenous from Paris. Oh man, I'm gonna butcher it. Basically, the licorice grommy project. Um, it, yeah. it completely like when I saw the picture of it, it's like, oh, that's the fish that Lawrence Kent talked about to us at our Greater Seattle Aquarium Society Club. And and so Lawrence is a past guest of this podcast. He's somebody that works in uh, the humanitarian uh, kind of agricultural realm, and he travels to Southeast Asia. He travels to Africa for work. And on one of his trips, or I think maybe a couple of his trips, he and, and uh, some friends that he has there, they've gone after and searched for the licorice gourami. And so his whole hour-long presentation was about, um, you know, just the extent of puddle hopping, basically looking for the licorice gourami um, and how, you know, just what that experience was, sharing pictures, um, and then just kind of talking about the root cause, at least for, for them as he presented it, was a lot of palm oil plantations um, is starting mm -hmm. to encroach heavily on their um on their on their habitat yeah that's definitely the biggest threat to their habitat right now is just the development of these palm oil plantations so shoal is working with local partners to first some more assessments need to be done to find out exactly where all the fish are and what their populations are looking like and then um also looking at there's, you know, like channels that run by the palm oil plantations, seeing if they can survive in those channels at all, and then developing like better conservation strategies and management plans, uh, working with the government to preserve these habitats. How, I mean, how do you, how do you handle the sticky topic of, you know, a, 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 another nation's right for economic development and then you know also understanding that like in in this case palm oil you know we've kind of identified and have exploited palm oil as this you know kind of a, a lard alternative i guess right like it's in a lot of the the processed margarines and whatnot it, it's probably in a lot of our just processed foods in general that we would consume over here i would have to imagine is coming from like palm oil that's not necessarily grown or produced here in the states like how do you because that starts to get like very complicated and very gray area and very sticky you know it's like you want to you want to conserve a fish species you want to conserve species in general and habitat in the environment but then it's like, you know, a nation's sovereign right to develop their land as they see fit. And like, what, how does Shoal go about that? I think one of the most important things is that we always work with local organizations and local partners. We don't 
kind of come in from the outside and try to tell people what they should or shouldn't be doing. Um, we find people who are already established in their country who have a concern about the loss of habitat or the loss of freshwater species and um, are already really familiar with kind of what's acceptable for their society and what's feasible as far as change. And you're right, you can't, you know, tell another country, like as someone from the outside, that you just should stop expanding palm oil plantations. It's, it's like that colonialist conservation approach, right? And that's not where Shoal wants to come from. We want to work with people who are already on the ground, locals who care about these issues, who know how to balance the issues of conservation and development. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just wanted to, I wanted to look from, if we were to talk from the other angle of, so that's the supply aspect from it, but then the demand aspect, like what are we, what exactly are we putting palm oil in? And is there a, you know, and it could be via, you know, kind of avenues like this podcast and people becoming aware. And I don't know what your thoughts on this are of, you know, hey, if if your favorite potato chip company, I don't know, I'm, I'm probably picking the wrong food maybe. But if, you're, if your favorite, uh, you know, processed food company is known to use palm oil in their product, you know, that's, that's something where you can make a conscious decision of, as a consumer to, you know, be, you know, maybe respectfully vocal about that. Maybe they use an alternative source that isn't palm oil or something that comes from a more sustainable item. Um, and I do know that some of like the, the new, I hate to say trendy, but like the new processed meats, right? So the meat alternatives are very, very vegetable oil based heavy. And I would, ha- I would actually be very curious if, um, you know, on one hand they market themselves as, you know, a meat alternative, say what you will about that. I'm not, I'm not casting any judgment whatsoever. If somebody wants to, to abstain from eating meat, you know, more, more power to you. But if those then people are, are saying, oh, we're not using cow products, you know, we're better for the environment because there's no cow farts. But, you know, maybe they're using palm oil and the palm oil is coming from what, what was once like the licorice garami habitat. It's like, have you mm-hmm. have you really gone down your sustainability supply chain and are you being true to consumer? And then in general, like, you know, hey, how many Aquarius listening to this right now? We're aware of palm oil plantations. You know, and it's not, maybe it's not just palm oil plantations. It's, you know, cattle ranching in Brazil or like where, wherever it is where we're taking, um, you know, once prime natural land and turning it into something else. And I will even point the finger at us. So you said the Central Valley in California. That's where I'm from. My hometown, my hometown of Manteca, California, my dad would always do the thing of, you know, for as far as I could see, you could see great vineyards, you could see almond orchards, you could see like it's the Central Valley is like this breadbasket of the country, right? We produce so much crops in the Central Valley. And yet we've now taken our fertile Central Valley land and we've put suburban housing on it. Like you've taken what was once prime almond orchards, you know, pumpkin patches, mm-hmm. like all of this amazing, you know, farmland, and we've built houses. We've built houses. We've built a Bass Pro. We've built, you know, we've, <laughs> we've paved over it. So, you know, and I'm not saying that as like other countries, you're bad. Like we do stuff still to this day that seem fairly contradictory to, you know, what could be a sustainable practice because you can have sustainable farms here with sustainable practices. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think palm oil is, um, it's in a ton of products, 
you know, you really have to do your due diligence if you want to avoid buying it. There's a lot of conservation organizations who have taken up this cause of trying to get consumers to pay attention to what they're buying and not buy products with palm oil in them. There's questions, you know, and efforts to see, like, are there sustainable ways to to have these plantations? Um, but they're one of the major drivers of global deforestation, and mostly they're in... Um, in tropical countries like Indonesia and Malaysia, which have a ton of rare endemic species, not just fish that are being right. threatened, but primates mm-hmm. and you know uh, all kinds of species. So, well, we're kind of we're kind of hosed because if you look at just one of the first like returns for palm oil, like what is it used in? Consumer retail food and snack manufacturers. We kind of hit on that. Personal care and cosmetics, biofuel mm-hmm. and energy animal feed, pharmaceutical, industrial, food service, service industry. So it's permeated, (laughs) you know, all over the place. Um, Yeah. 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 And uh, I think, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of effort going on in the conservation world to, to try to help educate people about the effects of palm oil plantations and about what kind of getting producers to either switch to not using palm oil or to help work with plantations to develop more sustainable practices. Do you feel like, is there, from the Shoal perspective, is there optimism around that kind of stuff? You know, at least um, where we're working in um, with the paraphemenus and Peninsular Malaysia. I think there's some opportunities there for sure. I think, um, as I said, there's these uh, channels that tend to be dug around and through the plantations. And it's, it could be possible that that could be habitat for some of these peat swamp fishes. And so if we could work with the plantations to to assess that and to uh, see if there's ways they can manage the plantations to maintain water in those channels mm-hmm. um, so that as the kind of naturally formed habitat has been has been diminished that we can hopefully expand some of their distribution into these channels. Yeah, and the, the thing with the paraphemenus too is that, uh, at least as, as Lawrence said it and from his experience working with them, that um, that you know they're a small, beautiful uh, fish that perfectly fits into aquarium. You know, to to being an aquaria. Um, one of the things though is that they are rarer in the hobby, and that when you do actually have them, if you want to breed them and keep them in, you know, uh, the ideal condition, they basically want like a, a pH of like 5.0 or something. It's incredibly, incredibly tannic, very, very low, very acidic water um, mm-hmm. to to breed them, which isn't a bad thing. It's just that then kind of puts it into this other like you know, super nerdy echelon of the hobby. So it's not like, you know, Cardinal Tetra. You can can pretty much put a Cardinal Tetra in any, well, I'm sorry. I I don't want to say anything, but Cardinal Tetras are very popular. So they're very accessible. They're very visible in the hobby. Or a Paraphemenus. Did I say that right this time? 
Mm-hmm. Okay, you, yeah. you just need to drop like three of the letters in the middle of that word, and then you can say yeah. paraphemenus is is really what happens there. So the paraphemenus, um, you know, it's it's not as it's not nearly as accessible, and you kind of have to like know you got you like you got to know the German guy that you know has all the paraphemenus in his basement. You got to know one of those guys to to basically yeah. get some access to a paraphemenus, and which is very unfortunate because this is a very very cool beautiful fish. Um, but then it's almost like it would be a stretch then to even really rally the aquarium community behind this one particular species and you know not that they're necessarily i don't know what word i'm looking for here but i I guess you know we can build the awareness but it's not going to have that same like pull on the heartstrings maybe is a a fish that a lot of people have Mm. but still worth talking about though 100 percent. but this is yeah this is where i think it's really important for shoal to learn more from the aquarist community about the types of species that they're most interested in and then we can go and look and see what are the status of those species in the wild and what are the opportunities to conserve them and where can the aquarist community come in to support those conservation efforts yeah i I think i talked a little bit about like uh, the sulawesi lakes in indonesia and that shoal is developing some projects there and there's um these shrimp that you said maybe aren't super popular but are becoming more popular yeah the the sulawasi shrimp so for anybody that that listens to this and knows the sulawasi shrimp that's going to be you know that real bright red you know very reminiscent of a of a neocaridina cherry shrimp but they've got like the the white i think they've got white spots on their carapace but they've got the white little uh kind of glovey hands and so as they're mm-hmm. moving, you know, they, they, it just adds this extra real fun element to them. I've never kept them. Uh, I know that they're sporadically available. Um, you know, you can join some of the shrimp groups on Facebook. Somebody may have them there. They're, they're a little bit more rare. Um, but from my understanding, there not many people have kind of cracked the code on how to properly keep them like we have with Neocaridina or the Caridina species. Um, so, you know, something that a shrimp nerd would probably know, um, probably not like a normal average everyday aquarist that is familiar with maybe cherry shrimp um but yeah i mean what what kind of stuff are you guys doing with uh in sulawasi yeah we're looking at these um mahalona and malili lakes they're ancient lakes down there in indonesia and sulawesi and um mostly we're looking at these sailfin silver sides um they're pretty closely related to the rainbow fishes of Australia. Mm. And the males have really nice yellow and blue coloration. Um, there's 31 species that are endemic just to Malili Lake. So, uh, is it Tel- Telmatheriana? Telmatheriana, is that? Yes, I believe. I'm just throwing stuff against the wall now with the Google search. That might not be it. Macro or. Mero Sathreni. Okay. Let me see here. Is there kind of um, you know evolutionary backstory? Were they a part of kind of that same landmass as Australia and Papua New Guinea? And that's kind of why you have these divergent populations of, of rainbow fish where also some of them kind of ended up in Sulawasi through, you know, plate tectonics. 
I believe so, yeah. Yeah. They got um, kind of separated way back when, like five million years ago or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, because they've got the smaller profile of not like a a Melitonea or a Bosmani rainbow. Like those are much, much larger. This is more... um, uh, like a red neon rainbow or a thread fin rainbow, they've got that smaller rainbow fish size to them. Very like very yeah. you know tetra tetra in body shape. Like, yeah, they almost kind of look like a silver tip tetra at first glance. Oh yeah, day Is that what you were saying? Mm-hmm. Kind, yeah, kind of. Why not? <laughs> you give me credit for that shirt. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, cool. And like rainbow it. rainbow fish are actually, you know, short of them being the ones that need a little bit of salt water, I think there's only one of those Pseudomogo, that's the species I'm thinking of. Um, they're they're pretty easy to breed. Um, you know, you, you put your spawning mop in, so you take your your are you familiar with the spawning mop in, in Aquaria? I'm not so you take, <laughs> I should be. So you take a book. You take a book, you take some green yarn. Green is like the, you know, internet preferred color. Um, you take green yarn and wrap it around a book like fifty or a hundred times. So something like that. You take a you take another string and kind of run it underneath the, the 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 mass that you've just wound around a book, tie it off, and then on the opposite side you cut the you cut you cut all the fifty or hundred strands, whatever it is, and then you're left with this kind of like dangling mop basically. Tie the top of it to a cork, put it in the water. And within a couple of days it takes on enough water where it just sinks and you've got this like hundred tentacle kind of octopus cork head thing. And the rainbow fish will spawn in that like crazy. So pseudomogil, uh, melatonea um, Chilarthena, like all the different rainbow fishes will just go crazy in it. They'll lay their eggs in there. Um, some species like Pseudomoga luminatus that I worked with, the, rain- the red neon rainbow fish, they will eat their egg. Um, but a lot of them will just leave their eggs alone or they lay so many, they breed every single day once your lights kick on for the most part, um, that yeah. you can just pull these mops out, put it in an empty aquarium. And within a week you'll have, you know, you'll have basically every single day you'll have different fry um, you know, you, you'll have fry, like just like crazy. And so you need very, very small micro foods for them. Um, uh, but, but once they get maybe within a week of eating the micro foods, you can then start feeding them live baby brine shrimp that you just hatch. And so their rainbow fish are fairly easy fish to breed. And so like, if there's, you know, any cares opportunity and cares being the uh, kind of hobbyist conservation group that really wants to promote people keeping rare fish in their aquariums, um, for potential reintroduction at some point, or at least bringing awareness to, to fish. Um, those are fish that are typically, if they're on the IUCN list, they will then be, you know, a CARES kind of sponsored fish and, and whatnot. So, yeah, very, very, very cool. Well, it would be really important for us to, yeah, that sounds great, really cool, and it would be really important for us to connect more closely with CARES, I think, because... Um, one issue for some of these fish is that, you know, the really critically endangered ones is that there might not be much we can do to save them in the wild. And so we do need aquarists to kind of take them on to have like an ark or a refuge exactly. population mm-hmm. so that these species don't just dis- disappear entirely. Yeah, and uh, so Dr. John Lyons, in one of the episodes that I gave you as a reference so that you knew I wasn't an overly large crackpot, um, but, you know, he was, he was a part of that Gadead working group that did the reintroduction of the, oh, boy, was it the split fin tequila or was it 
Zoonoticus tequila. Which one was it? But they reintroduced a uh, one of these fish, and the whole reason they still had it was one guy like in New Jersey, like a New Jersey or New York Aquarius hobbyist. He ended up like having them, like he had them, and they were able to to disperse them and get a large enough population going, and then also get some back down to Mexico. I hope I've got this story right. Uh, get some back down to Mexico to have that kind of arc project, and so that mm-hmm. is like legitimately, you know. Because when I think superficially and cynically, when you hear that, like, oh, Aquarius are going to keep fish and you're going to save a species and reintroduce it. Yeah, right. But then you actually have this like tangible story of success in Mexico where they were able to, you know, like greatly reduce the invasive species in there um, in this stream, um, in this this body of water and then reintroduce the fish and come back, you know, a month later, two months later and actually have like, oh, wow, they're actually doing well and they're increasing um, yeah, and they, you know, I think they're chalk, they're chalking it up right now as a as a pretty successful in- reintroduction. That's an awesome story, and that's like just the kind of thing that we want to see happening, you know, especially for these fish that are really on the edge, you know, in the wild that somebody can take them on and make sure they don't disappear entirely, and then maybe some habitat restoration can be done, or you can find you know, former habitat that um, you can make suitable again and you can do a reintroduction and get them back out in the wild again. But even at the very least, to have these refuge populations is essential. And, you know, zoos and aquaria can't take on every every endangered species. So having the hobbyist community involved is so vitally important. Yeah, it's like when you, it's like when they have those projects where you can like, let your computer use spare cycles to help crunch like algorithms or something. You just like sign up for these projects and you just, you know, while your computer's chilling, you're doing something. If you've got spare cycles, you know, have your computer at home chunk through some of these things. I don't know if they still do that, but I remember that was kind of a thing. Um, I mean, kind of, kind of the same concept, crowdsourcing and, and whatnot and spreading, spreading the risk around, I guess, risk mitigation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a good example. So, so Harmony, from the, the Shoals perspective, um, how would you most want the audience listening to this? How would you, like, what would you want them to do coming away from this episode, right? Like, assuming I didn't put them to sleep and you were able to keep them awake throughout <laughs> the duration of this hour-long interview and you did your job as an awesome guest, <laughs> like, what would, you, what would you want, like, their immediate actions to be after this, you know, having heard about Shoal and about your experience and, you know, the plight facing a variety of these fish, some of which, you know, we've never even talked about this on this podcast. I mean, I think, you know, one of the main things that would mean a lot is to help grow the shoal, grow the partnership and have people, um, you know, the conservation world and the aquarist world have been largely separated and shoal wants to help bridge that gap. So we want to help build collaborations that, you know, will help safeguard these really threatened freshwater species. We want to learn from aquarists because so many of them know so much about the species they're interested in and the wild habitat where these species survive. Um, But we need that information to be shared on a broader scale. I think um, also it's important to think about, uh, be discerning about where you're sourcing your fish from because there are cases where really rare fish are being collected from the wild and that's 
causing a, a really big impact on the population. So that's something for people to think about. Um, you mean like Colombian zebra plecos that uh, <laughs> originate in Brazil but are that considered Colombian? <laughs> yeah. Might be an example, yeah. And then, you know, reach out to us with your ideas and your thoughts. And if you're interested in supporting conservation, um, follow us on social media. We have a newsletter that we put out. Um, share information about Shoal with your hobbyist friends. Um, our website is shoalconservation.org. And you can sign up to our newsletter there from the homepage. We're on Twitter at Shoal underscore org. And we really want to work with Aquarius specifically. And we need Aquarius to engage with us and help spread the word. Is it fair to say that maybe a, a good next step then would be, for, from the Shoal perspective, um, would be to try to get into in this COVID, you know, no in-person meetings for fish clubs. Um, I know my club in particular is kind of not that we're scraping the barrel, but we're looking for like who can do a good remote presentation to talk to our fish club. Um, it sounds to me like, you know, volunteering you up as tribute again, uh, you were volunteered up for this episode, for this interview by somebody at Shoal. Uh, but maybe, you know, if fish clubs around the world or, you know, in this country, um, if those, you know, speaker chair people like Zenzo Tozawa, former guest, and he's the, the, the chair of like San Francisco's Aquarium Society, if they had an open month, you know, to plug in Shoal, to plug you in and be kind of a guest presenter, right? So like, I would assume you probably have a slide deck on what Shoal does and, and the projects that you work on, basically mm -hmm. doing Zoom Q&As with fish clubs, you know, where you'll get 50 to 100 of the club members, you know, for an hour, hour and a half long presentation uh, and just or even make it like super informal. Like, hey, if you want to interrupt with a question, put it in the Zoom chat, you know, ask away and just have like this real good back and forth where maybe it's more based in a slideshow presentation where this is just kind of you and I talking and going on, you know, different paths as, as the conversation strikes us. But I think to me, if I was a club speaker chairperson or if I was somebody, you know, relatively even engaged with my club and you guys were looking for somebody I would I would hit you up harmony and say hey do you want to come you know you want to do our our April you know fish club talk do a zoom meeting and you know we'll do Q&A or whatever it is like that that to me seems like a, a decent first step yeah or second step like, or third I don't know you know a step <laughs> a decent step <laughs> a great step yeah a free step for wonderful. the most part yeah yeah because that sounds like a really good way for us to like connect with more people in the hobby world and learn more from all these people that have so much expert knowledge and see, you know, if there's people out there who want to collaborate on projects, who want to support the projects. And so I think that'd be really great for us mm -hmm. to get those kind of opportunities. Yeah. And you, you already are having some levels of conversation with Dr. Anthony Maserol at the Amazon Research Center. Yeah, actually going to have a chat with him tomorrow. Nice. There you go. So that's that yeah. is fantastic. Another shout out to Amazon Research Center and all the cool work that they're doing in Iquitos, Peru, where, you know, his, his approach of educate, continue to educate the population and the youth of Iquitos, build this really awesome aquarium where people can come in and, you know, school field trips and see this awesome fish that are in their in their water um, that are in the, the river just right outside of the town and you know help them build that that fascination and that love which they've had a lot of success with the um with the manatees 
of having like the manatee research center and having the locals know that this super awesome manatee like exists out there he's in trouble you got to help you got to help him out and you know i think that youth of iquitos that youth of peru has really kind of rallied behind and realized that they have this amazing national treasure um in their in their portion of the uh of the amazon yeah yeah i see like you said the amazon research center for ornamental fishes having the same potential by building this aquarium and like letting the local people get really good exposure to what amazing fish live right you know in their own backyards or back rivers Mm -hmm. (laughs) around Mm -hmm. their homes and develop that appreciation for them and especially working with kids i think is so important i saw that when i was working in costa rica like the young people had been exposed to environmental education since they were young and now they're teenagers and they all wanted to work in you know being a birding guide being a naturalist being a conservationist so i think what the amazon research center is doing is is really great and that's why we want to collaborate with them and help support them however we can yeah awesome well harmony this has been a fantastic conversation i felt like we've gone all around the world uh, a little bit we've at least been in we've we've at least been in southeast asia for a good portion and there's <laughs> there's a lot of cool stuff going on there and uh, i definitely thank you for your time coming on uh, like i said i will link um you know your social media accounts uh shoal's website and anything else that you come up with between now and when i publish this just shoot those links over to me we'll put them in the show notes and you know my my, my challenge my call to action like again anybody that has any you know say in your club or if you can make a recommendation for speakers um you know Offer offering harmony up as a, I'm, I'm just totally going on a limb here that you, <laughs> that you that you'll even do this. I imagine that you would though. Yeah, um, no, yeah you know, yeah. Speak at uh, speak at one of these these clubs just through a Zoom call. I mean, that's kind of I don't think there's a single club out there meeting in person, and so you know this just just feels like a natural fit to kind of break things up from you know maybe collecting trips or fish room tours. You know, kind of the standard. Uh, presentations that I think a lot of us have been seeing and actually have something that has that conservation bent um, or bend rather. So yeah, Harmony, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, Thank you, Randy. Thanks for having me on.